Let's start with four quartets. I've got to take a minute to put things on the board. I've been too chatty here and should have done this before. <laughs> Let's start with four quartets, and I'll read that, and then I'll put some things on the board, and we can start, Lewis. Can you, um, can you take out your little getting phone? We're doing the second part, right? Yes. Okay, good, good. I hope you guys realize how much I'm depending on you because I'm losing it. <laughs> Just losing it. All you young people laugh, but one day, one, oh, day, one day, all you yeah, youngsters. We're, we're just giggling because we're right there, there with you. Um, just a quick, a, 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 a brief note here. Remember in the opening of Little Gidding, he, he presents this um, <coughs> uh, midwinter spring moment. And it's stunning what he does. If, if I, um, actually, um, if you go back to, I think it's Dry Savages, yeah, or Dry, the second section of Dry, or, no, sorry, he's Goker. You don't have to take it out, but if, just for your own interest, if you go back to East Coker and look at the second section, it begins, what is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring? So you already get a, a, a glimpse of an intuition he had years before, that there was something in this winter moment when, when uh, um, um, in the season of winter when a spring moment is, asserts itself out of season. So it's like a a moment in time, out of time. And how do you explain it? Where did it come from? It's out of season, it doesn't belong there. And he sees in that, once again, an image of this still point, that somehow these things enter our life, they're very often imperceptible, intangible, it's hard to see, but it's the sort of thing that the poets do see. I mean, Elliot's been showing them to us over and over and over again. In Little Gidding, he takes that moment and he, he, it's as if he sees more fully what's present in it. I don't want to go through it again, but remember he said, midwinter season, its own season, sempiternal, though sodden towards sundown. It's an exact, precise description of what it is. Suspended in time between pole and tropic, when the short day is brightest with frost and fire, the brief sun flames the ice on pond and ditches, in windless cold, it is the heart's heat reflecting in a watery mirror, a glare that is blindness in the early afternoon. It's winter, it's cold, but he shows the juxtaposition of the cold and hot, the, the, um, the fire, the, the glare on the ice, how much it blinds. So in this moment, he's bringing opposites together. But at the center of this is this notion that spring, how, spring somehow has um, revealed itself in winter. Where did it come from? How do we explain it? And he goes on to say that it's his own season. It's real. <coughs> and then here, he does something that he didn't do in East Coker. He relates it to the motions of the, the soul. So it's an image in springtime of a motion that's exactly like that, by analogy, in the human soul. That this fire, this, these opposites, um, assert themselves in the soul. 
So it's this moment of a Pentecostal fire when the Holy Spirit enters. And I'm assuming it's true for most of us that we have these moments, they're almost imperceptible. It's not like a car hits us and yet we know something's happened. It's the, the, the Holy Spirit rarely um, violates us. He always solicits. It's gentle. I mean, he wasn't gentle with Paul on the road to Emmaus, but that's rare. I mean, sometimes he has to knock us over. But for the most part, he solicits. It's a gentle motion. And we're not aware of it until we look back, and then we go, holy cow. And then we begin to put things together, and we realize something more was going on that we didn't see because he's so, he's so imperceptible. It's so hard to see him. Stirs the dumb spirit, no wind, but Pentecostal fire in the dark time of the year. So... Um, he, he presents us with this winter season um, and a moment in which spring presents itself all around the season. It's like something breaking into winter. And he relates that to something happening in the soul in exactly the same way. Um, <clears throat> um, and remember, he talks about the, a king visiting. Remember, Little Gideon is the, is the house of um, Nicholas Farrar and his family. We talked about this, I think, that um, Little Gidding was this domestic home in which um, they had a chapel and the family gathered there for prayer all day long and the Eucharist. And Charles I came there when he was fighting the Puritans um, for refuge and the house was eventually destroyed. So once again in the house itself we've got an image of something there and not there. Something existing in memory but not there. And he talks about the, um, um, if you came by night like a broken king, if you came by day. Um, and then he ends, because he's talking about this way to something. And remember, we've talked about this. If you carry the Eucharist in you, it's no longer adequate to explain our actions in terms of getting from here to there. Because if the Eucharist is in us, there has to be some sense that we don't always know where we are. There's, we live in some strange state so saying from here to there is inadequate to really explain what's going on. That's why Eliot is always dealing with these apophatic moments, these things that we can't quite know. Um, he says, if you came this way, taking any route, starting from anywhere at any time or any season, it would always be the same. You would have to put off sense and notion. You are not here to verify. This is what most of us do, isn't it, during our daily lives? Argue, confirm, assert. Um, make ourselves, we, want, we don't want people to ignore us, we push ourselves forward, um, having our way, clarifying something. If we're professionals, we're going to do it with an air of authority. If you're not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity, or carry a report, those things make up most of our life. Um, you are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity, or carry report. God, how many? That pretty much covers their life. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid, and prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind. We all know that very often we pray not the way we should. It's too easy to just pray a certain thing without having gone to our depths. The conscious occupation of the praying mind or the sound of the voice praying and what the dead had no speech for when living 
They can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire. There's that image of fire again, beyond the language of the living. If we would only communicate with the dead, Christ is there, but all of the dead, the saints, everybody. Remember, Odysseus had to go to the land of the dead. It's not until we go to the dead that we will learn about final things, and it's only with that knowledge of final things that we really understand what we don't see very well here. Um, here, the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere, never and always. There it is again. Where are we? Never. Is England and nowhere? Never and always. <laughs> That's that in-between timeless moment. How many of us are prepared to shut up and be there? I'm saying that really seriously. How many of us can shut our mouths and know we're in the presence of a mystery? Somehow be one with it. Okay, that's the first part. <coughs> the second part, what we're going to read now, is has two sections. It's a series of um, stanzas <coughs> that are written in couplets. You know that couplets are rhyming pairs of lines, right? Couplets. In the first section, every one of the couplets takes one of the four major elements, fire, air, earth, and water, you all know those, right? You guys ever watch the Avatar? Are you guys aware of that cartoon series? We, we put it on for our kids. It's, it, it starts with, it's an avatar who learns to master fire, air, earth, and water, but he has to learn to work with other people. Um, I, I love it. The, the, the kids are already learning about fire, air, earth, and water. And, and he takes the four elements and shows that they all come to nothing from dust to dust. That's based, so it's a very, very dark, opening. And remember, behind this is Little Gidding, which was this domestic chapel community, very small, very intimate. And it's gone. <clears throat> it was a house that is now turned to dust. So it's there and not there. And everything about it, um, um, a Wayne's caught a mouse. I mean, Elliot's so good about bringing very ordinary things together in a very polished line, like a mouse or a tree or but all these things come to nothing. The second section is a description of Eliot, um, who actually did this, who was a, I can't what you call it, it's not a fireman, but it, it was a position in which he had to um, um, walk the streets of London, I guess after or during a bombing, to watch out for people to help. And in this walk, I think probably after a bombing, you can still see the shrapnel flying like leaves. Marshall? Probably, yeah, thanks, Bill. something like that. Uh, well, closer probably to a Marshall, but yeah, but um, shrapnel flying like leaves. And to the images, I just want to hold on. I'm not going to say more. I'm going to say this and then read it, and we're going to go on to Lewis. Um, during this <coughs> walk, this watch, he's met by somebody he recognizes, and it, nobody knows who this is for sure. It, it, it's, the likelihood is that it's Dante, and it may be a compound figure, because he calls it that, made up of Dante and Ezra Pound, who was a, um, a contemporary poet with Eliot. And the reason that I'm saying that is because both Pound and Eliot worked together. Eliot, or Pound helped Eliot write some of his poetry. He was a severe critic, both modernists. They knew that they had to deal with a non-Christian world and had to find a language to 
to bring their poetic vision to the world. But they knew that one of the problems they faced is that they had to do what they called um, um, to purify the dialect of the tribe. The, one of the problems that poets constantly encounter is cleaning up language. Because you know the workplace language takes a hold of us, and when the workplace language takes hold of us, it does our thinking for us. As much as workers say, get outside the box. If there's no way it's gonna happen. Because once you're in a workplace, that language has defined the boxes. Even what's outside of the boxes, you're in a world in which language makes it easier not to think. Because you just start using the language that everybody else uses. That's why when you first start reading poetry, it's so difficult. Because poets are coming from somewhere else. So one of the great challenges they took on was purifying their language. That's what poets have to do. And to do that for a Christian means getting back to the truth of the word. To find that point of intersection, to find a language peculiar to that period in time. 19th century, 20th century, 20th century. That will always be the task of the poet, to find a way of getting to the word that's, that's appropriate for that particular period, 17th century, 18th century, right? You all following? So to purify the language of the tribe was a serious business. They had to find a language that, that would speak in our, our, our own tongue, but to say things most people couldn't say, partly because they didn't have the language. One of the problems that they inherited is that they inherited the sentimental, particularly in the church. If you, if you look at the artwork in the church in the 19th century, it's already dying. It's sentimental, it's unreal. That's it, that's it. By the way, just on, on a personal note, one of the things that I realized when I left Greek Orthodoxy and converted, wasn't a conscious part of the decision, but I saw it afterwards. If you look at the Eastern Orthodox world, its art is always back in the Middle Ages. It's iconic art. It's in geometric abstractions because to the Eastern mind, you want to leave this world to go to that world. An icon is a, is a source of meditation. You're supposed to meditate as a way of getting beyond. Western art has always been humanist, naturalistic. After Giotto, the painter, you, you, you've got to um, locate us in the natural world, but do it in a way that suggests something beyond. The Eastern Orthodox priest is behind the iconostasis and now. In the Western or, um, Catholic world, um, the altar comes center and the priest faces us. It's a way of trying to bring Christ to us so that our naturalistic world relates to him and the world beyond. Is that clear? So, so the great problem for Western art is how do we keep art from being sentimental? Because it's too easy to get caught in sentimental images that, you know, 19th century, 17th. Where are the artists in our church today? The musicians, the artists, the liturgical artists, I mean, who? I hope you see, that's an ongoing because problem. One of the things that I realized in, when I left Orthodoxy was, in a sense, it's almost like the Holy Spirit stops in medieval art. In Western art, we're aware that he's moving forward, that he's always recreating. Where are the artists today? Yes, Elliot. I, that you know that supernatural love poem that I that I've read to you guys that I always break up in. Um, did I I read that? Did I read that last week? Yeah, yeah, yeah I can't. Uh, you know what I'm. Where are the artists? Where are the artists helping us to see Christ in our time? 
with our language. Is everybody following? So that was a serious business. So while he's on this watch, there's this night marshal, he's visited. I, I think it's Dante, because remember, the important moment for Dante, those of you who did this with me, is that moment when Virgil approaches him and the two go on together. Virgil's his guide. So Eliot's met by this person and they go on and in the same context of the first section of this, the first part of this second section, this guy gives him this wisdom that he should take and all of it again is dark. Just like those opening lines, very, very dark. Most of us think we work our jobs, we get our security, we retire, we're going to have it comfortable, and what's comfy, and you know, no problems. <laughs> Worse, we do it because we think we deserve it. I've worked all these years, and you know, Ellie's going to take all of that away. I hope it's clear why. I mean, all of we should know it here. And he's going to leave us with a really dark view. Um, um, and it, all of this is occurring during this night raid. So what Eliot's showing is that very often it's in the midst of a, I've seen, you've heard me say this about, it's in the midst of a crisis when we have to face the things that we do not want to do that there's the possibility for grace. That in, it, it, it's almost as if it has to take a violence to shake us up enough to look at those things we don't want to look at. And I would say it's even harder for Christians because so often we get comfortable because we know so much. That pride gets in the way everywhere. So in, so in both of these sections, in section two, we are taken into something like the dark night of the soul. In the midst of this bombing, there is this revelation and the, the truth that it shows is is um, fairly dark. Okay, let me just leave it with that. I'm just going to read it and then we'll start um, C.S. Lewis. <coughs> Section two. <coughs> Remember ash from dust to dust and the basic elements all going to nothing. Section two. Ash on an old man's sleeve is all the ash the burnt roses leave. Dust in the air suspended marks the place where a story ended. Beautiful, because all stories come to an end. They go to dust, like the, like the Ferrars house, Little Gidding, you know. Because I think he has that house in the background of this. Dust in the air suspended marks the place where a story ended. Dust in breathe was a house, the wall, the wainscot, and the mouse. The death of hope and despair is the death of air. There are flood and drought over the eyes and in the mouth, dead water and dead sand contending for the upper hand. The parched eviscerate soil gapes at the vanity of toil, laughs without mirth. This is the death of earth. Water and fire succeed the town, the pasture and the weed. Water and fire deride the sacrifice that we denied. Water and fire shall rot the marred foundations we forgot of sanctuary inquire. This is the death of water and fire. It's almost as it has that little getting home hidden by the sacrifice that we denied. It's there. Um, the marred foundations we forgot of sanctuary and choir. 
This is the death of water and fire. All things come um, to the end. And the uncertain, and, and notice too, and this is one of the reasons that it's, it, it seems to me there's a compelling reason for thinking the person who visits him is Dante, because if you'll notice, the lines um, unfold as tercets, three-line patterns. They don't rhyme. In Dante's Divine Comedy, the tercet rhymes. It'll be A, B, A, B, C, B, C. It'll, it'll be a forward-moving rhyme. These lines don't rhyme, but they're tercets. If you look at it, they're put in sets of three. Um, he wouldn't have done that casually or accidentally. There's, poets don't do those things casually. It's just another reason for thinking that the person who visits him is Dante. In the uncertain hour before the morning, near the unending of interminable night, at the recurrent end of the unending, God, going, can you hear all that? Again and again and again, they never stop. Near the ending of the interminable night, at the recurrent end of the unending, after the dark dove with the flickering tongue. Now, that's, a, that's an image of the German fighters, the bombers, and it's an image of the Holy Spirit. They're collapsed. This is a way of reminding what I said just a few minutes ago, that there can be a grace in these violent moments, because sometimes they're needed to shake us up. Without them, we get too comfortable. After the dark dove with the flickering tongue had passed below the horizon of his homing, while the dead leaves still rattled on like tin over the asphalt where no other sound was, between three districts whence the smoke arose, I met one walking, loitering and hurried, as if blown toward me like the metal leaves before the urban dawn and wind unresisting. And as I fixed upon the downturned face, that pointed scrutiny with which we challenged the first met stranger in the waning dusk, I caught the sudden look of some dead master whom I had known, forgotten, half recalled, both one and many. He's not going to forget Dante, for sure, because Dante was the central influence in life. But when you're in unusual circumstances, you know, when you're in a bombing raid, how likely is it that the first thing that would be on your mind is one of the most formidable influences in your life? Whom I had known, forgotten, half recalled, both one and many. In the brown baked features, the eyes of a familiar compound ghost, both intimate and unidentifiable. So I assumed a double part and cried and heard another's voice cry, What? Are you here? Although we were not, I was still the same, knowing myself, yet being someone other. Because remember, we're all compound. I hope that's true, yeah? Whoever we are represents a community of influences. We carry, however much we are individual people, a self, Bev, Demi, Lois, whoever we are, we couldn't be who we are without communities of people behind us. So I assumed a double part and cried and heard another's voice cry, what are you here? Although we were not, I was still the same, knowing myself, yet being someone other. And he a face still forming, yet the words sufficed to compel the recognition they preceded. And so compliant to the common wind, too strange to each other for misunderstanding, in concord at this intersection of time, intersection time of meeting nowhere. God, here it is. 
of meeting nowhere, no before and after. We trod the pavement in a dead patrol. I said, the wonder that I feel is easy, yet ease is cause of wonder, therefore speak. I may not comprehend, may not remember, and he, I'm not eager to rehearse my thought and theory which you have forgotten. These things have served their purpose, let them be. So with your own and pray they be forgiven by others as I pray you to forgive, both bad and good. If that isn't this morning's reading in both wisdom and the, I mean, even though Christ is saying you don't know who I am and, um, and pray they be forgiven by others as I pray you to forgive both bad and good. Last season's fruit is eaten and the fulfilled beast, full-fed beast, shall lick the empty pail. For last year's words belong to last year's language and next year's words await another voice. But as the passage now presents no hindrance to the spirit unappeased and peregrine, between two worlds become much like each other. So I find words I never thought to speak in streets I never thought I should revisit when I left my body on a distant shore. It's so like Virgil in the Canadian. Since our concern was speech, and speech impelled us to purify the dialect of the tribe, and urge the mind to aftersight and foresight. Let me disclose the gifts reserved for age to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. Now here's the irony. We reach this point in life where we think, all that I deserve, all that I've done, cozy life, comfy life, right? I deserve it. I want my retirement, my boat, and <laughs> who knows? Um, so here, um, the gifts reserved for age, a crown upon your lifetime's so here's the crown he's offering. First, the cold friction of expiring sense without enchantment, offering no promise but bitter tastelessness of shadow fruit as body and soul begin to fall asunder. How's that for a crown and comfort? <laughs> Second, the conscious impotence of rage at human folly and the laceration of laughter at what ceases to amuse as we grow older, we become more and more aware of how ugly the world is. I mean, how disordered. Um, we can rage at it forever. <laughs> what good is it going to do? Um, the impotence of that rage. And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been. This is the line that I, we, Suzanne had mentioned it once before. I, I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember what we were talking about, but she was talking about the guilt that we come to as we get older because we look back on our lives and feel ashamed of the things that we, we thought were done with such good motives, only to realize later that they weren't as good as we thought they were. It's a perfect, hmm? it's a perfect gloss onto we have faced. Yep, yep, yep. <clears throat> yeah, I was thinking that too, reading too, I mean, that I keep just seeing Elliot, you know they were contemporaries, I mean just seeing how much these men as Christians were, were opening up this darkness in, the, in our world um, and echoing each other in very, very different ways. But The shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm which once you took for exercise of virtue. That is Oriole when she comes to that moment at the end 
when she says to herself, or the, or the God, I am Oriol. Or Ungut, I'm sorry, I am Ungut. And she has to look back and, and then begin to see more. That's her task too, you remember when she has to begin to sort out her motives? When she does that, she begins to see how ugly she is. And it's really clear, and we're getting, I'm getting it, it's really clear, she cannot go forward without doing that. Without doing that. The shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm which once you took for exercise of virtue. Then fool's approval stings and honor stains. How much of us are glad to have people approve of us? And how much of us are glad to receive honors? If you reach that point where you see your ungut and people start approving you, what are you going to feel when what you see is that they don't see the ugliness inside of you? The approval you get, I mean, it, it, what it does is add salt to the, sh to the wound. Um, then fool's approval sting and honor stains. From wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds unless restored by that refining fire where you must move in measure like a dancer. There's that image of the dancer that's been with us from the beginning. The day was breaking in the disfigured street. He left me with a kind of valediction and faded on the blowing of the horn. It's an interesting moment because the night watch is over. People can come out. The, the, the catastrophe, the immediate catastrophe is over. It's hard to read these lines without seeing he's just come out of it. Will he bring out of this darkness the wisdom that he should? He left me with a kind of valediction and faded on the blowing of the horn. Say that he's trying to tell us not to be complacent in life as well as in faith. Yep, for sure. Particularly as you get older. But also, just not even, you know, to, to know that in dangers, as much as we want to run away from him, God's never not there. That even in dangers, he's there. It, it may cost us more. There will always be a grace, this tongue of fire. Um, if we hold on to our faith. Okay. So, so those of you who've been here for a while, you've learned to read Faulkner. Talk about purifying the dialect of the tribe, the language we face, learning to read Faulkner. Eliot is one of the most difficult poets, and now you are, you're learning a new language here. <laughs> Okay, let me take a minute. I've got to put this stuff on the board. You guys go ahead and visit her. Sorry. Because I think it helps, Doctor, to, um, to see it. Sometimes people, lots of people, take it up.
Put up more, but this will do. Can we get back together here? You whispered the get together. No. No, I'm not going to let them off the hook. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? I just hope no, no. Any, my, uh, let me let me put this right. Any time the two of you are ready. I'm patient. <laughs> let's here. Can we? Um, I could put more, but let's. I, I should have done this before, so let's. Um, <laughs> Last week, um, I mentioned a couple of the more important themes in the first part. Um, remember that Oriol's writing this book is an accusation, a complaint against the gods. And she's intending it for um, a Greek, somebody from the Greek lands. Which means that she's writing it for a rationalist. I hope that's clear, because she believes that the Greek world was the source of rationalism. She got that from Fox. You know that Fox tends to rationalize everything. He, he reduces things to sort of philosophic abstractions. So there's a lot that Fox doesn't see. She's writing it assuming that that audience will understand and sympathize with her. Um, so the setting, in a sense, is moving towards a courtroom drama. She's going to present this complaint to the gods, assuming that she'll be vindicated. Um, and she sets out. And the story starts, remember, when her mother dies and um, the daughters have to undergo that ritual where they have their locks cut off. And it's one of the first times she realizes that there's something about her um, lacking. Um, Redival's got these beautiful curls, she doesn't, and over and over and over again we keep getting these things from the father who has nothing good to say about her and at some point she realizes early on that she's ugly. Um, and so um, this theme of the injustice of the gods, the, um, it, it, it's a variation on that theme of why do the gods let um, reward bad people? And why do good people suffer? She feels innocent. She feels persecuted by the gods. How can they do this? 
Um, in so many ways, we, we see it immediately that, um, that I think that there's something, there's a certain kind of suffering peculiar to women when they grow up. So I've called this the plight of woman, that because she, she compares herself with others, she does it always to her disadvantage. She's not as attractive. I said, I, I don't think I'm going too far here. It's not in the book. But I, but I would say that a beautiful woman would have her own problems because she would grow up wondering whether people loved her for her beauty or who she really was. So Oreo's plight, um, I think it, it's important to see it in the context of beauty. It's one of the great themes of the story. Um, she's sensitive to wounds. She, she lives in a male world. The, the king is her father. He's a brutal man. And the tyranny that um, he he displays in so many of his actions has the support of the gods because the royal house apparently comes from the gods and I mentioned that that we see that in the 16th 17th century in the, the theory of the divine rights of kings um, it was in it was in um, Henry VIII when he broke from the church the kings in that time believed they had God's sanction behind their power that's biblical if you go back to that point in the Old Testament when the, when the Jews say they want to be like other nations and they ask for a king. God gives them a king. So there's, there, the kings could have easily made an argument that their power is partly vested in the gods. They have the support of them. So whatever hardships she faces are amplified by the fact that the gods are behind it. Another reason for not trusting them. <coughs> the theme of the city Remember the city and Ungud are set off by a river, and when Oriol goes to um, Psyche's palace, she's separated from the, the side the palace is on by a stream. Water is very often an image of a liminal experience, a defining liminal, a threshold experience. Two worlds are separated. The royal house tends to want to be self-sufficient. We've talked about this from the beginning. The, the, the city comes into existence when um, Cain is set into exile. That's an old theme. The first city was founded by Enoch, Cain's son. So the city represents man's effort. The city represents man's effort to be self-sufficient, to live without God, almost as if he's a god. It's one of the paradoxes of the city. That's the nature of city. Um, it's an important theme, I really believe. Um, we can miss it, but remember, the, the city's off from, the, um, the palace is off from Ungut's place. Later in the, in the story, when all these, when um, Oreo begins to experience these revelations and has to look into herself, she has all these visions. In one of them, her father comes to her, and the father takes um, a pickaxe and a spade and begins to dig through the floor of the pillar room. After they get through that level, they get to another. It's earth. In one sense, they're going beneath the, the city to look at all those things that the city hides and that Oriol has been helped to hide. So just remember the importance of the city. I mean, it's, it's an image of man attempting to be self-sufficient. So the city's always paradoxical. It shows the very greatest things of man. It shows his worst failures. And the house of Hungut is meant to offer them, but the difference is the house of Hungut demands sacrifices. 
The city wants to avoid them. Oriol doesn't like sacrifices. She's horrified. But the king, remember when the priest comes to him, he thinks he's going to be asked to be sacrificed, and he's t terrified. Oriol is never more embarrassed than, than she is then with her father because he makes it clear he would do anything before he would sacrifice himself for his, for his children. <coughs> the, the theme of sacrifice is implicit. It's, it's present in the first part of the book. It becomes explicit when Psyche is actually taken and, and has to be sacrificed. That's moving us towards the climax because you know that Oriol says that she wants to go get Psyche's body, bury her, or recover her if she's still alive. So the theme of sacrifice and is very important. Oriol, we can say, does everything she can to avoid. She hates everything associated with sacrifice. She hates the smell of the blood sacrifices. She says when the priest comes in, he brings this reek of holiness. Anything associated with sacrifice, she runs away from. The last thing she wants Psyche to do is give up her life. Because for her to be sacrificed means she loses her. Um, beauty and the desire it awakens. Psyche is born beautiful. Oriole's not. Um, when Psyche goes out into the town, people are taken by her beauty because they associate beauty with wholeness. And wholeness has a presence, a power. People felt that when they were in the presence of that beauty, that wholeness, they'd be healed. Imagine, I mean, there had to be something like that with Christ. He's not a woman, a man, but there had to be a radiant beauty, a presence in him that people would have felt. Um, and remember, when the woman touched him, he felt power draining. So there has to be a presence, a, a wholeness that's present in beauty. Because beauty itself, remember, the integrity, the wholeness, that's what, that's what makes beauty what it is. Um, and nobody can be in the presence of beauty without um, desires being awakened. Beauty awakens desire. We long for that. <clears throat> Generally, it takes an erotic form. <clears throat> but not always. It can be friendship. And the theme of sickness. Um, the theme of sickness. Um, in the opening chapters, sickness is always associated with an ordeal that somebody's undergoing. Fox, um, Oriwell, when she loses Psyche, and Psyche, remember, when she goes out and she takes on the sickness, she's undergoing a change. She's being, she's being looked at as a goddess, first as the source of healing, and then the accursed. She becomes the accursed. Um, so those are the, so these were the themes we touched on last week. So the first eight chapters took us from the death of Oriole's mother to um, um, her going to Psyche in the tower to try to convince her or console her um, about her sacrifice. And you remember we looked at that, that it's there that all of the hints that we've been given early on are made explicit. There are these, if you, if you read it again, you'll see that in the opening pages, we're already aware of a possessive love. It's, it's veiled, it's hidden, but at the end, in that, in that tower where Oreo visits Psyche, it becomes explicit. She gets angry at her. Um, she um, feels sorry for herself because Psyche doesn't feel sorry that Oreo's losing her. Um, and she even blames her. So we begin to see the emotions that come into play 
as a result of possessive love. Um, <coughs> anger, blaming, self-justifying, because she does that too in that chapter. So that's where we were. Um, in the next eight chapters, where we are t today, we go from Oriel's vision of Psyche's palace, remember, to her return and her father um, um, falling and getting injured and being at a point of death where she takes on the authority as queen and um, she meets Trunia. She hears this voice in the garden who says something like sweetheart or hold it or something and then we know that he's seeking refuge because he's fleeing from his brother. Um, that's going to make for an alliance in the next um, section we do next week. So what's at the heart of this book? <coughs> possessive love. What the book is about, essentially, is possessive love. What Lewis is showing us is what happens to our souls when our love of earthly things becomes greater than our love of God. When we turn that love on earthly things, it makes us possessive. We want those things inordinately more than we should, and it, make, it makes us bad. We feel sorry for ourselves when we lose them. We get angry at people when they threaten us. We blame others, and we constantly justify ourselves. Yeah, that's what Ori is doing. From, from that point on, everything she does, even when she's shown the mountain, She's not going to admit it because to admit it means there's something wrong with her. And she's, she can't bring herself to admit that yet. So the major theme of the book is, um, is possessive love, the, the, the way it blinds us and the, the way it encourages us to take on a mask, to present ourselves as being somebody we're not. Because you know that when she comes home from the palace, she puts on that mask, and she will wear that mask most of her life. Remember last week, I gave you the image of the charioteer, didn't I? With Plato's two horses? No. Huh? No. No. I didn't? Oh, really? No. God, it's getting bad. Worse and worse. Oh, God. Um, okay, hold on. I think most of you know this from our work already. Remember, according to the... According to Plato, the human soul takes this form. It has these faculties or um, attributes, faculties. I think I did give it to you. I think you guys just forgot. This <laughs> <laughs> wasn't the last week. That's <laughs> I don't care if I am out. No, you guys are just losing your memories. That's the problem. <laughs> Pray for my wife, will you all, please? We do. God. <laughs> God. Okay. Plato and Aristotle were realists. I mean, they were so good. This is Plato's presentation of the human soul. There's a faculty of reason, but there are these faculties of appetites. And he could see this very clearly in this scene. He gives this example. A man is on a desert and he's thirsting. He's dying from lack of water. And he sees a pool. And next to the pool, there's a sign that says poison. All right? One part of him is going to want to drink. 
another part of them is not. So there are two desires in conflict. And reason is operating or it could make that distinction. Is that clear? So just from our own experiences, we know that the soul has these different faculties. A rational faculty and an appetitive. Right? That's just basic. We all know that. Um, Plato said that spiritedness was the appetite, desire, directed towards transcendent things. Transcendent things. Like truth, beauty, goodness, honor. Yeah? The higher things. The appetites was desire, the eros, the desire directed towards material, physical, physical things. Food, drink, sex. So, um, um, the difficulty, as Plato imaged it, was for reason to control the appetites. And he said that the only, re the only way reason could do that is through this middle element. So this middle element was absolutely crucial. In the Iliad, Plato gets this from Homer, the, the poets are the ones who see it. It's called thymus, anger. It's a spiritedness. Aristotle says anger is the rectificatory emotion. It rectifies. When somebody's threatening us, our response to hold off that threat is anger. Or if something's, if we want something, that's something in the way we get angry at ourselves to, you know, to, it, it rectifies, it helps us. Let me just slow down for a second here. To make this clear, here's the problem. C.S. Lewis, um, uh, he, in that book that I recommended, Abolition of Man, uses, he actually refers to this diagram. Imagine a young teenager, 16, 17-year-old teenager, a young boy and a girl in high school who've never learned to develop their hearts the way hopefully they could be developed. The two of them are together and they're watching a movie that's got a neurotic side to it. Is reason in that instance going to be strong enough to have that couple hold off from doing what they're very likely to do? Have I used this example before? No. 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 You all see the problem, right? Is reason going to be strong enough when the appetites are there? Think about the addictions in our world. Or the overeating, or over sex, or over drinking. Is reason ever going to be strong enough to hold off? I should have brought God bless. No. Actually, here it is. Does everybody see that? Reason won't be strong enough. There's no way reason can do that. You can be one of the most brilliant people in the world. It's not going to be strong. It just doesn't have the strength. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about it. He's critiquing educators in our age who tend to debunk emotions after the romantic age. Emotions are looked as bad things. I, um, I told you that we got involved in a... Um, therapeutic rehab things when our, and I think I've told you in the middle of our life when um, we discovered that our sons were having drinking problems and we had to deal with them and being involved with this community was an eye-opener for I think both of us. One of the things that I learned is how how much people with, with the program called stuff their emotions. You just stuff them, you bury them, you don't deal with them because they're too painful. Um, <coughs> 
one of my, this is my critique of the modern world, one of the great best things I think we could do is help kids, ourselves, learn to have healthy emotions. Remember that I said the great task facing us as Catholics is how do we order our loves? This is a lot behind, sorry. <laughs> no. Um, <clears throat> um, Catholic or Protestants believe we're depraved. The difference between a Catholic and a Protestant, the, Catholic, the Protestant believes that the effects of the fall were complete. We exist in a depravity. Our body, our emotions, everything's depraved by nature, by essence. A Catholic doesn't believe that. A Catholic believes we're wounded. In essence, we're still good, but there's this wound. We call it concupiscence. We, I certainly know, we know from that concupiscence that it can be overpowering, that we're too weak to put it off. Our whole existence should be a helping to being helped to overcome that um, so one of the problems we face is how to order our loves to make them ordinate lawful okay the, 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 so a, a Protestant believes things in nature are inherently evil there's no way to judge their emotions a Catholic knows that things are inherently good an apple a dog whatever a flower but we've got to learn to make our loves ordinate, to love things as we should. Loving something more than we should is idolatrous. Loving things not enough is sloth. That's Dante, that's Aquinas, that's our church. The struggle that we face is making our loves ordinate. How do we do that? Well, I'll tell you, the answer to that is obvious. Read good poetry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Here's Lewis, here's Lewis. He's responding to educators who are debunking emotions, who, who want to develop the rational mind, because that's one of the characteristics of the modern. We live in our heads, intellectually we live in our heads. That's been true for 300 years. He says, in battle it's not syllogism that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of the bombardment. The crudest sentiments of these teachers about a flag or a country or a regiment will be of more use because they're debunking this. They're saying to love nature, to love your country, to be patriotic. You know, that these are all sentimental emotions and they should be debunked. You laugh at them. As the king governs, here's Plato. We were told about it a long time ago by Plato. As the king governs by his executive, so reason in man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element. Here it is, yeah? Reason rules this by this. Yes? Take out the spirited element, we're in trouble. The head rules the belly through the chest. I'm going to say the heart, the seat of the affections. As Alanus tells us, of magnanimity, of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. Those of you who listen to Father John's um, Robert's um, talks a couple of years ago, remember how the importance that he gave this thing called magnanimity, the large-hearted man. Because it's there where you have noble emotions. You can get angry where you should, but you will be magnanimous and forgiving. You have a large heart. How, how in our, what can we do in our world to help our children have large hearts? The chest, magnanimity, magnanimity, Sentiment, these are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it's by this middle element that man is man, for by his intellect he's mere spirit, by his appetites mere animal. 
We either turn to angelic creatures or animals. And the interesting thing is, if you notice, if you think about this in literature, in our own human experience, people who tend to be overly intellectual, very often become bestial. People become bestial, justify. They use their reasons to do it. Those two things are like mere reverse images of each other. It's by the middle element that we're most fully man. Um, the operation of this textbook that he's talking about, its kind is to produce what may be called men without chests. Think about how much our modern world has reduced um, teaching to pedagogy, to methods, to methods. Um, not helping to develop good minds and good emotions, it's methods. It's an outrage that they should be commonly spoken of as intellectuals. This gives them the chance to say that he who attacks them attacks intelligence. It's not so. They are not distinguished from other men by any unusual skill in finding truth or any virginal ardor to pursue her. Pursue her. Indeed, it would be strange if they were. A persevering devotion to truth, a nice sense of intellectual honor, cannot be long maintained without the aid of sentiments which these teachers could debunk as easily as any other. It's not excess of thought, but defect of fertile and generous emotion that marks them out. Their heads are no bigger than the ordinary. It's the atrophy of the chest beneath that makes them seem so. Their heads are just ordinary, but if you compare them to their hearts, their heads are atrophied. They, have their sh they, they use their intellects and put themselves in shrunken worlds. And all the time, such as the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. <coughs> I keep hearing John Paul years ago, I just loved it when he did, when he, and he was echoing Christ, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And he did this thing, and Protestant world wouldn't do this because the Protestant world looks down on the body. What did John Paul write? Theology of the body. It's our affections are, are, are there. What we need, um, feed my sheep, feed, feed the heart, help, help people learn how to love. In a sort of ghastly, Simplicity, we, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chest and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. Because we tend to criticize, we look down, we, we, we put people down, we find fault everywhere. Um, we laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. The people who debunk are the ones most responsible for taking away the heart. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. <laughs> often at home when we're saying prayers with our kids, I often you know, include them, help them be brave, help them love. You know, we, need our, we need to help our kids become brave, to face difficulties to not turn away or not find fault all the time. So here's Plato. Reason controls the appetites by means of this, the spirited, what the Greeks called phimos, anger. Here's the charioteer, reason, yeah? He's controlling 
the dark horse by means of the white horse. Remember, the, the white horse is the love of noble things. You know how hard it is to hold on to the noble things when everything around us is bad and what we want to do is find fault everywhere. To, to use the white horse to control the dark horse. Because if you take the white horse out, that dark horse will overcome it. Okay? Now here, here's the theme in the beginning of the book. It's, um, it's in some sense, this middle element. Lewis makes clear that in the beginning of the book, this middle element isn't just spiritedness, it's possessive love. It's Oriole saying mine. I mean, she, she, she wants Psyche for herself. She will get angry, she will feel sorry for herself, she will blame, she does all she, she can. She does all she can with reason to excuse herself, to make excuses, to blame. So for the greater part of the first two-thirds of the book, it's impossible to read a page without seeing, or you will use reason to justify, to blame, to excuse, to turn something, to, to, to make it fit her. So in one sense, the problem seems a problem of possessive love. But when Psyche enters the picture, we have an image of a woman who is ready to sacrifice herself. There's that scene, I, I, wrote, I read it to you. Remember when she says, how did she put it? Um, how can I atone for the, these things if I don't sacrifice? How can it be an atonement if I don't sacrifice myself? So she's completely ready to sacrifice herself. Oreo's response to that is no, she doesn't want to lose her. Do you remember? I can't, I think it's at the end of that first section that we read last week. How, how can this happen if I don't sacrifice women? So she is willing completely to, to give up her life. So what we have now is, this is Plato, and, and this is clearly a, a dominant image for C.S. Lewis. He's used it all of his life. <coughs> he uses it here. What he shows us with Psyche is that there is, all, along with this possessive love, this, this tendency in the human soul to say, it's mine, I want it. Remember Gollum? In, um, those of you who know the, the fellowship will know, Gollum's the image of that. I can't watch that trilogy without saying, <laughs> they're mine. I mean, that, that's a, that, however ugly it is, that grotesque figure is an image of something in each one of our souls. The possessive love, I, it's mine. Because with it, I have the power to do whatever I want to do. Yeah? And you know everybody in that book comes under its influence. The, the great struggle of everybody is they want that ring because with that ring, they have the power to do whatever they want. So that's an image of something in the soul of all of us. Um, along with this spiritedness and this possessive love is what Lewis calls the anima naturalite Christiana. The anima Naturalite Christian. He got this from Tertullian, one of the ancient fathers. Um, the natural human soul. It's an image of Christ. The naturally Christian, sorry, the naturally Christian soul. If we're all made in the image of God, and we are, we're all made in the image of God, there is at the center of the soul this Christ-like power. The animu, the soul, naturalite natural Christian. Yes? For a Protestant, what happens to it? 
If, the, if man is completely depraved, it's obliterated. It's taken away. It shouldn't be, and I don't think for a high Anglican or the high Catholic, you know, the English um, Anglican Catholic Church would still have some sense of that. So what Lewis does is um, deepen Plato's picture of the soul. You've got reason and appetite, but the, this middle element that's so important, the seat of magnanimity, the seat of the affections, takes um, the form of a conflict between this possessive love that's at the heart of man and this Christian impulse that's at the heart. Because that's what plays out in the story. Um, the conflict between faith and reason. You can't miss it at every, at every page. Fox comes into the picture and educates the, the girls and he teaches them reason in a really good way. I mean, he's a noble man. But we know that on almost in every page we see Oriol using reason um, to make excuses to justify she doesn't see. <coughs> I want to just take a second with this and then I want to look at the passages dealing with the palace. One of the major themes <laughs> is there been a work that we've done in which I have pointed this out as a major theme. We don't, I've been saying from the, we don't read well. We think we read well all the time. We're educated, we're older. Um, in every book that we've read, misreading, people misread all the time. They look at other people, misunderstand them. They don't see the significance of things right in front of them. The poem that I love so much, The Supernatural Love, how many people would see a little girl pricking herself as an instance of somebody participating in the crucifixion? We don't see very well. Great poetry helps us to see more deeply in the concrete or in We'd have to go to Mass. If our eyes were open, we'd find God everywhere. I mean, we'd be seeing Him at work. So we don't read very well. Poets, um, certainly the ones we've been reading, are helping us to see things we don't see very well and to see God working in the world where ordinarily we don't see Him. Um, we're going to go to this in a minute because you remember that when uh, Oriol goes to Psyche's palace, she sees water and berries. <laughs> There it is. I mean, think about it. I mean, it's true. And when she goes home and tells Fox, what does Fox say? It's renegades or somebody who stole her. It's men. It can't be anything other than men because he will not. It, Fox is an interesting character. He loves poetry, but he can't, he can't admit it um, because it goes to emotions. He, he cannot let himself, he cannot open his heart. When she goes there, she sees um, material things. She does not see the things beyond. And when she goes home, in some sense she lies. She doesn't tell Fox fully what she sees. <clears throat> There's a skeptical side to her. <clears throat> so this whole theme of, of reading, of seeing well, is major here. She does not see things as they are. When it, because it's going to involve a sacrifice for her, she does everything she can to deny it. So that's what she takes. A couple of interesting um, byproducts of this. Remember when she meets with Bardia and she's going to go on this trip to, Cat to go to the tree where the sacrifice took place. She's talking with Bardia and she makes a comment about her father. Bardia says he's not such a bad man when he's around soldiers. That's something beyond her range of sight. Now think about the importance of that. 
She's ready to be critical of her father at the drop of a hat. She has nothing good to say about him. Suddenly she's with Bardia, and he makes her aware of a side to her father that she's not seen. So again, this whole this mercy, forgiveness, how well we see, whether we see with eyes of love or whether we're too much in our intellects. And remember when she comes home and, and she talks with Fox, do you remember what happens with Fox? He has very little good to say about Bardia. So she's seen a side of Fox that she's never seen before because she loves this man. But how much does she love him for the wrong reason? So over and over again, we're, we're getting this aspect of sight and the way, our, way we use our minds to blind us to things that love would open to us, make available to us. That if we loved the right way, we'd see the world differently. So this whole theme of reading again. And the last thing is um, when Oriol comes back, this, the, um, after she goes back, she sees the castle, then she wants to go back again. And when she does, and she tries to force um, Psyche to come with her, when she doesn't, and she sees the castle shattering, and she hears Psyche's weeping when she goes off into exile. When she goes home, she puts on her veil. And she just commits herself from that point on to wearing that veil to cover up her ugliness. Um, when she puts on that veil, she enters into her own darkness. She locks up her heart. She puts on a mask to the world to cover her pains, her wounds. And that's what she presents to the world. Remember, we've been talking from the beginning about tragedy and the tragic hero, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Othello, um, one of the paradigms of, of the tragic, the, the, you know, the tragic paradigm is, one of the aspects of that tragic paradigm is a, a noble-souled person um, enters a darkness and isolates himself from the rest of the world. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Othello. Um, he's noble-souled and there's something about his nobility that isolates him. He ends up suffering things that other people don't. So it sets him apart. And it's in that darkness that he discovers something other people don't see. And remember, my reading of tragedy is, I mean, most people look, I mean, it's our world. Most people look at tragedy as bad. You know that that's not the way I believe, not in literature. The, the tragic hero always, the, in the great tragedies, the tragic hero always comes to some new sense of things other people don't have. Um, Oedipus tears out his eyes. The last scene we have of Oedipus in Oedipus Rex is, is gouged eyes, blood pouring out because he sees things like nobody, and not even Teresa is the prophet. The prophet! He sees things nobody else can. My argument is he, he's the most extraordinary beautiful creature in that play. Spiritually he can see things other can't. He's got this grotesque to the world. He's grotesque. You look at him spiritually, he's a beautiful thing. He's seen depths that nobody has. He begins his exile. If you read the trilogy, Ed, the trilogy ends with in Oedipus at Colonus, with Oedipus being assumed by the gods. He goes to the holy place by Athens, and the gods take him in. It's like a, it's like a prefiguration of sainthood. It's extraordinary, just extraordinary. The tragic heroes always reach a moment of a peripatia, a turn, a peripatia, turn what the church calls an an. Um, 
metanoia, a turn, and, a, and an anagnorisis, a recognition, a seeing. He sees depths that others don't. So with Oriol, as a, a woman, we've got now a, a tragic kind of figure. She enters her darkness, she will isolate, and it's interesting, she, she will become a, a queen far more effective than her father ever was. She will do things he, he should have done, never did. She's going to accomplish a lot. She's going, to be, she's going to appear to the world as this very efficient, competent woman. Inside, she's hiding. She enters her darkness. So that's where we are here in this section. I just want to read some, but that's where we are. All of this, this is the most important thing for me, all of this is a setup for next week because all of this is heading towards this extraordinary ending. I mean, what happens is too complicated. I'm not sure that we can cover it a week in, a, in one class. It, what happens is truly amazing. I think it's one of the most amazing endings of stories in our time at, at this depth. He takes us to that depth and he does things that we haven't seen really since Dante in some ways. So, let me stop and I, I want to I turn to the reading. But any questions or comments before we look at some of the passages? I guess my question is, Bardia, what, what part does he play in all this? Actually, I'm glad you said that. Here. Wonderful. Here's Plato again. Here's Plato again. You don't want to get me started. In the Republic, where we get the first image of the soul in Plato's Republic, he says the two, the two things that are most needed in education, this is all sadly lost in our world. God, I'm going to get angry here. Control me. Um, I'm going to start swearing. It just makes me furious. Um, the impotence of rage. God. Um, he said the two things that are most needed in the education of the human soul are um, gymnastics and music. Because gymnastics helps a man become courageous to face physical difficulties, and music makes him gentle. Now think about how, how hard that, because what Plato's saying is, we have to bring two things that are very opposite together, because if we don't, we're going to end up with a distortion. Either we're going to produce a jock, or a nerd, an intellectual. So, and, and somebody who's, or, or, yeah, somebody who's effeminate. We have to produce courage and gentleness. Hard to do. I'm assuming you all know that, right? Well, look at look at Oriol's two teachers. Now you answer your own question. Those are her two teachers. Well, Bardia seems to teach her how to fight, and the fox tries to teach her how to think. Mm-hmm. Here's Plato. Yeah. Um, the fox teaches her how to know, to learn. Bardia teaches her courage. Remember her first response when he says, I'll teach you how to sword fight, what was it? No. <laughs> she said, no. He pushed her and said, do it. He said, it's the, it's the best way out of your mopes. Because she's crying. She says, he's, what he's saying is stop crying for yourself, show some courage. What he's saying, remember, remember uh, Goody Hay in the mansion when Christ came to him? Get up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Out of the water. I mean, what do you do when you're in the, except it's somebody who's in the, in the, in the wells of self-pity, stand up. You know, Barty is teaching her courage, and he teaches her how to fight, and you know that he makes her a good fighter because she kills 
that that older, the older son, um, and keeps him from being king, which would have presented a real problem to Gloam. So in, in, I'm so glad you asked that because I meant to cover it. It's just my mind is. <laughs> She's got these two teachers, and in some ways, what we see is two things that are ordinarily kept apart are coming together in her. She's learning both. But all of this is taking place while she's, while she's entered her darkness, okay? So glad you asked, true to the end. Any other? Let's, let's look at the book. Let's see if I can do this quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on some of these, but I want to just in passing go over them. Page 110, you don't have to go there, but I just want to quickly remind you. Remember when Oriole sets off to go to the, the tree? It's the first time out of the city, beyond the city limits, and she's seen for the first time the beauty of nature. If you remember, it's on 110 or so, if you can mark it yourself. If you remember at the time, she is so taken by the beauty of things that she forgets her sorrow. Now, what is Lewis saying? Stop with it. What is he saying? If we would let go of our possessive loves, God, this is just amazing. In a Protestant modern world in which nature, because you know, the modern world says there's no nature to things. Men and women have no nature. There's no sexual nature to a man or a woman. We don't have a nature. There's no, nat there's no nature to human beings. That's the modern. If you take away nature, we lose a, a, a point of reference. We lose a way of measuring our emotions, what's right or wrong, or what's ordinate or not. When she goes out into nature, she sees this beautiful nature. <coughs> she says, for a moment, I forgot my sorrow. It's really interesting. What, what would have happened if she had let go of her, her possessive love? She would have known a joy, but she can't let herself have it because she's so committed by the sexual love that she will not let herself know a joy even when it's offered her. So this whole question of ordering our emotions, can we order them if we don't give up these loves? If we don't let go of them. She's welcomed into Psyche's palace, you remember, and she's offered berries and water. Later, we learn that it was actually honey cakes and fruit and wine. It, when Psyche tells the story, she says that the maidservants offered her these things, and she could feel the hands in the plates or cups um, in which those things were given. So, we're, I mean, Lewis covers himself right there because what Oriole sees is only the cup the hand forming a cup and offering that. So th this theme of seeing and how much we see with eyes of belief or how much we see with a reason tends to be debunking, to, to make things less than they are, comes into play here. Um, <clears throat> one um, page, I think it's 212, let me. At one point in Oreo's in visit, Psyche tells her the story of what happened um, somebody help me, can you, where, 130, oops, 
the west wind. I think it's in 131, but I'm not. What are you looking for, Bob? The west wind. Ah. It's on um, 126. She described the west wind coming to her, do you remember, and lifting her out of the, the change, the, the gibbet. Um, and then she says at the bottom 126, describing the wind lift her, she says um, at the very bottom, and then at last for a moment I saw him. Saw whom? Because remember, Ori was expecting a felon or a criminal or the west wind. Saw it. Not it, him, the god with, there it is again, the scene. The god of the wind, west wind himself. Were you awake, Psyche? You hear, I mean, the skepticism and the full belief are set next to each other. Down below, there must be a way. She's got to struggle to find a way of communicating this to her sister because clearly there's a difference between them. Remember, remember that's, uh, there's a difference between them. Look, this may help you. When I saw the west wind, I was neither glad nor afraid. At first, I felt ashamed. But of what? Psyche, they hadn't stripped you naked or anything. See how she's ready to... No, no, my ashamed of looking like a mortal. Ashamed of being a mortal. But how could you help that? Don't you think the things people are most ashamed of are the things they can't help? I thought of my ugliness and said nothing. Now, she describes him lifting her up and taking her to the palace um, and being greeted fed and bathed and clothed and then taken to bed. At the site, at the, at the, at the, at that word, Oriol gets anger again. There's something about the he as a sister, that I'd notion that her sister would be given up to a man, that there's something sexual here, is I think somewhat implied in most of this. Um, <clears throat> on page 131, and then came the banquet and the music, and then they had me to bed, and night came, and then he, he, the bridegroom, the God himself, don't look at me like that, sister. I'm your own true psyche still. Nothing will change that. Psyche said, I can't bear this any longer. You've told me so many wonders. If this is all true, I've been wrong all my life. Everything has to begin, has to be begun over again. I'm sure all of us have had these experiences. I've had it a number of times in my life where you, you try to speak to something, the truth of something. I remember doing a proposal for a school where I was teaching and did a proposal because I thought there, there were some pretty serious things that needed to be addressed. And I looked back on it and had some sense of it then that what I was meeting wasn't what we call an old boys club. That there was a mindset in the people and that anything that challenged that would have made them feel wrong. It's like the Jews with Christ. It's like there's this mindset. You can't admit it because if you admit this, you have to say, I've been wrong all my life. I don't think this is an uncommon experience. Um, that's what I wrote down when you were talking about how she's expecting a bad guy, and that's the Messiah. You know, it's yeah. like they're expecting one thing, but they're right. getting another right. thing, and it's not what they picture. But, but I mean, for me, the point is, you can't admit it because to admit it means you're wrong. The pride of it, you know, so that it blinds you. You just will not allow that thing because to, to see that means you're wrong. And the pride involved in that, it can be massive, you know. So, I've been wrong all my life. Everything has to be begun over again. Psyche, is it true? You're, you're not playing a game. 
um, you know that she tries to force her to go. They get angry with each other, and for the first moment, they actually begin to look at each other as enemies because they're aware that the difference between them is so fundamental. Um, when, they, when they fight, um, Psyche tells her she has to go because it's approaching lateness. She has to meet her lord. Um, and she promises to come back. Oreo goes home and she tells, um, oh wait, sorry. Um, she returns to Bardia and then that night, you, let's see, I've got to find that. Um, 152. She's at the, the spring again. That spring is so important. Um, on page 149, sorry. She gets up. She and Barty have to sleep together to keep warm. She gets up a little while later and goes to get a dream. And then we have this on 149. I got my drink, ice cold, and I thought it steadied my mind. But would a river flowing in the God's secret valley do that? <laughs> over and over and over and over and over again. We keep getting these things that would make her say, of course it's got to be this way. And every time she's got to explain it away. Um, but would a river flowing in the God's secret valley do that, clear her mind, or the clean contrary? This is another of the things to be guessed. For when I lifted my head and looked once more into the midst across the river, I saw that which brought my heart into my throat. There stood the palace, gray, as all things were gray in that hour and place, but solid and motionless. Wall within wall, pillar and arch and architrave, acres of it, a labyrinth in beauty, as she had said, it was like no house ever seen in her land. Pinnacles and buttresses leaped up. No memories of mine you would think could help me to imagine them. Unbelievably tall and splendor, pointed and prickly as if some were shooting out. And Freud would make <coughs> nut, I mean, of all the phallic, it would sort of make these. I mean, he would turn this into nothing but animal, you know, sex pointed and prickly as if some stone were shooting out into the branch and flower, no light showed from any window. But by the way, Freud knew the animal unconscious. He did not know the spiritual unconscious. That was beyond his grasp. And what we're looking at here is, is of that nature. It was a house asleep and somewhere within it asleep also someone or something, how holy or horrible or beautiful or strange, with psyche in its arms. And I, what I had done and said, what would it do to me for my blasphemies? And I'm, at this point, she's at a truth. And you, you know what happens. Immediately she will explain it away. She will go back. She'll have his talk with Barty. And Barty will partly explain it away because he doesn't question holy things. And here's one of the differences. I mean, to go back to your question. Barty is a common man. He's, he, he's not a reflective man. So he doesn't reflect on things. He doesn't want to do anything to question it because he's, it would be impious. He's a pious man. He, he, he represents the ordinary man in his pieties. Fox is, is a reflective man. He will reflect. Um, I want to just um, <coughs> go to 194. We've got a, because we've only got a couple of minutes. I want to stop here. You know that she goes back and they argue, she uses her reason constantly to make clear that Psyche doesn't see things <laughs> well. 
Um, and then she takes out the dagger and stabs herself and threatens to do greater harm if Psyche doesn't at least test the god. So she asks her to take the light in, and then, um, and then that, that moment is a moment of perfect estrangement between sisters. Because at that moment, Psyche says, you will have your world now um, if this is your choice. So the two sisters are separated. Um, Oreo goes back and waits to see the light. She sees that Psyche lights the light, and then a moment later when she sees it in the, the bedroom, she hears this um, noise. Um, page 194. <clears throat> she sees the light in the midst of the stillness. It's night, it's dark, everything's still. And then the stillness breaks, top of 194. The great voice which rose up from somewhere close to the light went through my whole body in such a swift wave of terror that it blotted out even the pain in my arm. It was no ugly sound, even in its implacable sternness, it was golden. That's extraordinary. There's a couple of lines in here that are, to me, among the, they're pieces of poetry that are among the most beautiful lines that I know of in literature. This is getting close to it. Even in its implacable sternness, it was golden. My terror was the salute that mortal flesh gives to immortal things. And after, barely after, the strong soaring of its incomprehensible speech came the sound of weeping. Go down, um, then it thundered as if the sky broke into two straight above my head. Lightnings thick following one another pricked the valley, left, right, near, and far, everywhere. Each flash showed falling trees. The imagined pillars of Psyche's house were going down. The imagined pillars? They seemed to fall silently, for the thunder hid their crashing. But there was another noise it could not hide. Somewhere away on my left, the walls of the mountain itself were breaking. I saw, or thought I saw, fragments of rock hurled about the striking on other rocks and rising into the air again like a child's ball that bounces. The river rose, she describes it, the trees are floating, it, it sets up a torrent, it could drown a person. And then suddenly, coming over her, um, is this face. Um, I rose up, bent double under the battery of the rain, this is the bottom 195, to cross the stream. I believe I could never have crossed it, the deep foaming death race it had now become, even if I had been left free to try. I was not left free. There came as if it were a lightning that endured. That is, the look of it was the look of lightning, pale, dazzling, without warmth or comfort, showing each smallest thing with fierce distinctness, but it did not go away. This great light stood over me as still as a candle burning. Go down a few lines. Um, Though this light stood motionless, my glimpse of the face was as swift as a true flash of lightning. I could not bear it for longer. Not my eyes only, but my heart and blood and very brain were too weak for that. A monster, the shadow brute that I and all Gloam had imagined, would have subdued me less than the beauty of this face wore. That to me is a, one of the most stunning lines I've ever read in my life. A monster would have subdued me less than the beauty of this face. Something terrible would have subdued me, something terrified me. Terrifying would, would have subdued it more than the beauty of this thing. That's what the Greek world and the depth of our Catholic faith calls the numinous, the dread of God, the wonder that he's so far beyond us.
What an extraordinary line. To think of something whose beauty was so great that it would lead us with a sense of dread or terror. A monster, the shadow brute that I in all gloom had imagined would have subdued me less than the beauty this face wore. And I think anger, what men call anger, would have been more supportable than the passionless and measureless rejection with which it looked upon me. Um, let's see, go down at the bottom of the 196. I had known that Psyche's lover was a god. It's as if she's realizing the implications of all of this. And as if all my doubtings, fears, guessings, debatings, questions of Bardia, questions of the fox, all the rummage and business of it had been trump of foolery, dust blown in my own eyes by myself. You who read my book judge. This is to her credit. Over and over and over again, there are these passages where she really does clearly try to come to herself. But just go back to this. Just um, she, there, she makes efforts all the time, but it's as if the, this part of her, the fear, the dread, is so strong that reason keeps turning skeptical. It gets critical, it denies, it covers up. You who read my book judge, was it so, or at least had it been so in the past before this God changed the past? And if they can indeed change the past, why did they never do so in mercy? Um, then the God comes over her and at the bottom of the page says, um, well, she says, she, she, at the bottom of 197, you would fight your way through fire and spears to reach her. She's talking about the weeping she hears. And I knew who wept and what had been done to her and who had done it. Um, the God comes um, to her, stands over her, and then says on 199 um, that she, she, oops, no, she would be psyche. Sorry, this is on 197 in the, woman, in, in the middle of the page. You, woman, shall know yourself and your work. You also shall be psyche. And then it goes off and she hears the weeping and she knows who'd done it. Um, one last thing before we, um, we start, I mean before we finish. Um, on, on 171, just turn back for a second. Um, this is one of those moments where Oriole is questioning herself, going back and forth, and then she says at the top of 171, I took back every word I had said against them. I promised anything they might ask me, if only they would send me a sign. She will do all this on condition, on condition, if only they will send me a sign. Now stop for a minute. I want to look at that in the, and then at the passages we just did. What does it mean to ask for a sign? Because we hear this all the time. Remember the disciples asked of Christ? Remember after the multiplication of the fishes? When they go away, they don't truly believe. They, and, he, and they wanted a sign. Yeah. You don't want justification. You have doubt. Sorry. Doubt. Sorry. Doubt. 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 But flesh it out, Dunn. I'm not sure what you're saying. Sorry. Well, you, you don't. You're unsure, so you want some kind of a sign that. Right. What to do. Right. Right. Huh? You want proof. Yeah. What's wrong with that? Christ gets irritated. A little bit sharp with them, I think. And the Jews, remember, in the Old Testament, are constantly wanting signs. And Christ, at one point, says the sign is the sign of Jonah, and he gives that explanation. But what does it mean, show me a sign? If only they would show me a sign. My mind is more important than 
else. Yeah. What, what they want God to do is bring divine things down to the level of their reason. They want proof. Yeah. To answer their doubt. They, they, they want divine things to be accommodated to reason. Show me a sign, so I will know, so I'll believe. So they're really, and, I mean, it's an expression of a lack of trust, a lack of faith, a lack of sight. And the, the irony of it is what they're doing is um, demeaning, without seeing it, demeaning divine things. Um, that is, they want to bring the divine world down to their level, to the level of reason, when what's being asked is that they go up to it, that there is some divine order awaiting them if they would get past their heads. Um, I think also that, that um, we as human beings want to be justified to each other. And so um, if there's a sign, then we have justification for our belief. So that she believes me. Yeah. Because I can say, yeah. here's my cup. Yeah. But then there's Psyche, who believed without seeing exactly. his face. Right. She did. You know, Thomas, do you believe because yes. he's so bored? Yes. You know, blessed yes. are those who see, yeah. don't have not seen right. believe. Yeah, yeah. I think there's two types of truth. There's the intuitive truth, and then there's the logical truth. The truth that you gather by reason and logic. And then the intuitive truth is that which you accept as true without the proof. And I think that's what you need in the face of God. That you need this intuitive truth. Yeah, the, the, but the, I mean, I'm not quite sure so to you do can't that. You prove God. Well, St. Thomas and did. You can see nature and, and you know, uh, intuitively come to that realization. Thomas uses discursive truths to prove God's existence very clearly. If you read the opening questions, you'll see in the Summa, you'll see. Those are not intuitive truths, they're argued truths. But what he can't prove is the, the nature of his essence. What Thomas does in the beginning of that is that there's two ways to make a proof of something that's what he would call scientific. You can, use, you can reason from effects to causes or causes to effects. If there's a footprint on the sand, you know somebody was there. You can reason from effects to causes. But you can't say what that thing was, but you can prove the existence of something the interesting thing is, truth. if truth has any meaning, it means the same thing. Whether you approach it intuitively or you know, through scientific arguments, it's the same thing. It's a question of how much of it you grasp in any of those. Um, but here, I, it's just important. Remember, it's so, it's so like her to say that. And I think particularly because there's, there's always an element of self-justification in what Oriole does. But go back to the... Go back to the, um, to the um, falling of the castle, the collapse. What evidence, I just want to take a minute because we're, we're, we're a little bit, I wanted to end it <laughs> a few minutes later. Yeah, right, I did one here. What proof is there for Oriole that the god actually exists? Can we get it out before we leave today? Because you know she's going to go home and she's going to tell Bardia and Fox half of what happened. She didn't, she, before when she went home after the first visit, she did not talk about seeing the castle. She left that out. She omitted it. And now when she goes back, there's a lot. She won't, she won't tell Fox that she stabbed herself because she knows how, how angry Fox would be at her. So there's a lot in her presentation of herself that's half lies. 
She's not telling the full truth. What's the evidence at this point before? And but, so just to look at what's coming up, all of this has been leading to something. What's coming up next week is the heart of the story. I mean, just amazing things are ahead of us, and these are preparing us for us. But before we get there, what's the evidence um, it's that the God exists? Can we just name the things? God, thunder, is there nothing? The thunder, the, the mountains, uh, falling. Right. The trees and the river. Yeah. What else? Uh, it kind of reminded me when everything happened at the crucifixion when the curtain was torn and, yeah. and the temple was you know, destroyed and, yep. and the signs in the sky, the thunder, the lightning, the darkness. Yeah. I don't know whether it prefigures that, but that's what I thought of when I read yeah. it. No, I think it's really good, and a prefiguration allows, is a good way to look at it. Lightning that? allows you know, her to see things. Sorry? The lightning allows her to see what's going on around her. Yeah. She's falling in the, yep. the river and all and that. And she sees it clearly. The valley was beautiful when she got there, and after this it was just decimated. Yeah. Her readiness and her health are the first signs that she takes in her first visit. She can't continue to believe what she believes in the face of that because Psyche is too healthy. She's not starving, she's not skinny, she's not unfed. She is an image of perfect health. Um, the river, the, she saw the vision the first time. She saw the castle. She has that in her. She, she saw the castle, the palace being destroyed. Um, so there are things that she's keeping to herself so that she doesn't have to admit that she's wrong. And it should be, I mean, the serious question is here for us is how much does possessive love blind us? There's no reason, that she has every reason to admit that. Why can't she? I mean, the only obvious answer to that is that possessive love is so strong, she does not want to let her go. She can't admit she's wrong. I mean, that, so what we're seeing is a depth of sin in man and a woman that, uh, that works this way. Take a look at the book. There's a really, I mean, another way to put this, what's C.S. Lewis's view of reason if we just look at it up to this point? This. What's his view of reason? gets in the way of faith? Yeah, I'd put it even darker. It's limited. I think it's limited. Huh? It's limited. You can't do everything for reason. Yeah. I'd put it darker. I'd, did you go ahead? Well, that, I think you had touched on it before, that if you have reason without spirit, you cannot fight the appetite. You're going to lose. Yeah. You know, the, it's always that animal's going to win. The beast is yeah. going to win. And it can be corruptible. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, which the book, sh which the book, sh yeah, I mean, that's the darkness. I'm Fox's line when Oreo comes back is he uses this word, you, something about you can't, you, you can't rely on the mercenary powers. By mercenary powers, he was talking about the appetites that we, to use that, I thought that was a lovely way of describing them because it's like we use them for ourselves with that possessive love and make them do what we want to do. They're mercenary. That's lovely. It's corruptible and dark. 
If you look at the book, it seems to me you, there's very little good to say about reason. Because what we're going to find out later is Fox is going to regret everything that he taught her. And there's, not an, there's almost not a scene in which she's not using reason in a bad way when she can't see it. Now, that's putting in its worst light. Because I don't want to do this. I'm, but, but the other way to look at it is you can say it's really corruptible or a bad thing because people use it. To, that's what we're seeing. People use it to justify, to explain away, to minimize. To, the other way of saying it is that the appetites are so strong that what Lewis is showing us is if, if reason is left with them, that we don't realize how much our reason gets tainted without seeing it. So at this point we're left with all this darkness and the darkness that Oriol um, has entered into. Now we've got to see what's ahead of us. Is she going to come out of it? How does she come out of it if she does? Um, and what happens to her? The God said, you too will be psyche. What did the God mean that Oriole doesn't understand? And let me leave it there, because that's a really good question to end on. Okay. Oh, don't, 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 don't do that. I'm reading a book called How to Think. How <laughs> to Think? And really, it's more about a book about how things get in the way of our thinking. Confirmation bias and uh, passion and so forth. Yeah. Mer that, I can't, I've got to find that term. That term mercenary something was Fox's way of describing the passions. When he was talking to Oriole and concerned that not to let, for her not to let her passions get in the way of what was happening. Okay, we've got the best part ahead of us. Okay. You guys have a good week. Watch out for the Orioles inside of us. <laughs>